The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, November 24th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Two Sundays ago, uh, my son and I had the privilege of flying out from Richmond to Japan uh, where we were able to participate again in a a national church planting conference and church planting institute there where workers, pastors, missionaries uh, from all over Japan, from all different organizations gather together every two years and, and we just get the privilege of going in and leading workshops and classes and sessions on the gospel on the priority of the gospel, on the power of the gospel, on the necessity of the church, on dealing with different things that they're, they're facing there in that particular nation. And for many of us, we think about Japan, we think about technology, we think about advancement, we think about big cities, Tokyo, but we don't think about the fact that half of 1% of that entire nation confesses to be a follower of Jesus. They fall statistically into an unreached people group. As advanced as they are, half of 1% would confess to know anything or believe anything of Jesus. And so we go and we work to see the church established, to see the church take root, to see the gospel advance. And maybe another time we can tell more stories of of what we saw. This is the fourth time we've been. And and each time you hear more story of of God at work. You meet new pastors from new churches that are being planted. You, You hear of new works that are happening. And you hear the stories of new people and new families that have come to faith in Jesus. And so at some point along the way in the coming weeks, maybe we'll take some time to tell those stories. But I will say that of all the four trips that I've been on there to be a part of this conference, this trip in particular was probably the biggest learning experience for me. Um, I walked away with a better grasp from this trip on the role that the various religions have played in the shaping of the culture and the mindset and the life of the people of Japan. Um, it's always seemed so foreign I mean, you hear the stories of Shintoism and and the shrines and the rituals and all those things. You go and see it and you walk through all those places and you go through all those gates and you you see the hundreds of thousands of shrines throughout the country to all these different deities. And it just seems so other. But the more we explored them, the more we learned about them, the more we learned the history of them. As foreign as so much of that religion seemed, Under the surface, I I walked away realizing we're not that much different. There's a lot more commonality in heart there than than it may appear to be on the surface. So one of the things I learned more specifically on this particular trip in in relation to Shintoism, which has been the, the largest leading religion in Japan since its inception, is that Shintoism, and I'll just give you a very broad, very brief explanation. This is not nuanced at all, so don't argue with me. Shintoism at heart is all about making your life better today. That's what it's about. It doesn't deal with death, doesn't deal with afterlife. It's all about today. So there are hundreds of thousands of shrines all throughout the country. These shrines all have different deities attached to them. So what you would do, and each of those deities has different powers or does different things. So what you would do if you had a particular desire, a particular want, a particular need in your life, you would go to the shrine in your area associated with the deity that would deal with that. You would offer up a donation. 
You would go through a series of rituals. You would pull a big rope, ring a big bell, uh, do different prayers, burn different incense, all with the expectation that by your passage through these rituals, that particular deity would be favorable to you in your life and you'll leave and go on your merry way, expecting that deity to better your life then and there. That's Shintoism. And it seems so weird and so foreign when you're there. These giant gates you walk through, these big bells you ring, these rollers that you spin, this incense that you burn. But when you peel all the externals back, underneath it all is the idea that we have the capacity to manipulate a deity in our mind to give us what we want to improve our life now. Three weeks ago before I left, we spent an entire morning talking about how even as the evangelical church, we can find ourselves guilty of the very same thing, trivializing God into a deity that we can manage to improve our own life now if we only do the particular things we think we have to do to earn his favor. We really weren't that different. As foreign as all the externals seemed, we had a, a lot more in common. And I walked away from this trip just walking for the last couple of days through all these different shrines and around these different temples. And there was one temple in particular. There's really two religious hands in Japan. There's Shintoism and there's Buddhism. And they can both exist as primary religions in Japan because they complement each other. They don't compete with each other. Shintoism is all about bettering your life now. Buddhism is all about death, preparing for that. So there are temples that are there in Japan that were built in the 400s and 500s we got to go see. And there was one in particular I wanted to go see because if we, it, when we got there, there is this ceremony that happens there. It's been happening for 1,200 years. It happens every single year and it takes two weeks. People travel to this particular temple and they gather underneath the balcony that surrounds this temple and the monks come out at night, stand on the balcony with these flaming torches and they shake these torches over all the people that gather for those two weeks underneath the balcony and they do that with the hope and with the expectation of renewal and cleansing for the next year. And I was fascinated as I walked through these temples and these shrines and you pull all the externals back, pull all the differences away, pull all the things that seem so foreign and so other away. Underneath the surface, there is this human desire and sense of need for renewal, for joy, for restoration. And I walked around this place for those last five days, seeing all these things, talking to different pastors, learning about the challenges, learning about how they're having to, to preach the gospel and how the gospel impacts these different things. And on one hand, I was struck by the commonality of heart that we have, the desire of the heart that is common to man there in that place. But at the same time, I would see these countless faces. I mean, the population's so vast. Half of 1% would know anything of Jesus. And I see these countless faces passing by and I was so tremendously grieved because it's a nation that knows nothing of true renewal and lasting joy and restoration. It leads the world in suicide. The nation by and large in population has put away Shintoism and Buddhism as a religion. It's just culture. It's not proven to provide for them the things that it promised, but they don't know where to go. And it's dark and it's heavy. And so many of their population choose to take their life at the end of it. And so while I walk through those places going, wait a minute, we're really not that much different underneath the surface. And this desire for cleansing, this desire for renewal, this desire for joy, yet they know nothing of where that renewal, where that restoration and where that joy comes from. And so as I got on the plane and 
began to think about our time here and what we were experiencing there. I, I opened up the, the app on my, my computer to the Bible, began to read where we are. And the providence of God, again, just makes me smile because in 1 Samuel chapter 7, where we pick up on the story, we come face to face with the pathway to true renewal and true restoration and, and lasting joy. Though the story occurs in a culture far different from ours, external expression of internal realities are, are completely distinct from the way that we would experience it and express it here. Underneath the surface, the internal motivation, the pathway to renewal and joy, it's not much different. So we've got your Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 7. As we begin there in verse 1, let me just remind you uh, or catch some of you up if you haven't been with us. Up to this point, a few weeks ago, uh, we saw that Israel, because of their sin and the judgment of God upon them, suffered a tremendous defeat at the hand of the Philistines. Some 40,000 men were lost, but most importantly, the Ark of the Covenant was taken captive by the Philistines. Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of their god, Dagon, presuming that their god had been victorious over the god of the Israelites. And for the last two weeks, Ray has done a marvelous job going through the story and the narrative of the Ark and the supremacy of God over all such deities, helping us to understand in light of his glory who truly can stand before the presence of God. But as the story kept going, and we pick it up in chapter 7, the Ark finally makes its way back to Israel. So let's pick it up in, in verse one. Let's see where we are and then get to where God takes us to help us understand renewal. Verse one, the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and they took up the ark of the Lord. They brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from, the, from that day, the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. So the ark is, is back in Israel now. And a long time passed, some 20 years so from the time of the ark getting back to Israel to the time of the story that we're going to pick up in verse 3, 20 years pass. There's a gap in time, but it's not a quiet time. In the southern part of the land during these 20 years, most scholars believe Samson was exercising his judgeship and his harassment and nuisance of the Philistines down in the southern part of the land. In the northern part of the land where the story is taking place, we're reading, Samuel has been proclaiming the word of the Lord. We, know we haven't heard about Samuel in a few weeks. The story took a turn to talk about the ark. But when we last met Samuel a few weeks ago, Samuel left the tabernacle proclaiming the word of the Lord and all of Israel was hearing it. Well, he's still doing that. So in these 20 years, Samuel is proclaiming the word of the Lord to one part of Israel. Samson is judging Israel and harassing the Philistines in another part of the land. And while that's happening, something is going on in the hearts of God's people collectively. All of the house of Israel, the writer says, is lamenting after the Lord. Something's going on in their hearts. There, there's a sorrowful groaning happening in the hearts of God's people. They've been under the oppression of the Philistines for over 20 years. They suffered that as an exercise of God's judgment on their sin. But it sounds like now something might be happening. Is this a desire for restoration? Is this that desire for renewal? Is that what's stirring in the hearts of God's people? 
Well, that's what we're going to find out in the rest of the story. And as we read through the rest of the story, there are three primary things we're going to come face to face with. And the first is that the pathway to true renewal, the pathway to true restoration. The second thing we're going to learn is that there will always be a pressure that will test the genuineness of our renewal. And the third thing we're going to see in the story is that it is always and will always be a priority of God's people to remember God's renewal and God's restoration. I rarely ever do that. I'll just be honest with you. That's from my own brain. Jet lag will not let me keep everything straight in my head as we go through this. So I'll try to order it around that. All right. There is a pathway. There will be a pressure and there's going to be a priority. All right. If I don't get to one of them, remind me. Yell that out. All right. Where's the pathway? Where's the pressure? You know, just tell me. All right. In fact, let me pray. I need words for this. Lord, we ask in the time that we've got that you would do the work that only you can do, that you would open up the ears that you have given us to hear something of your kindness and mercy to us in your son. Hear what we need to hear that we might experience the true renewal and the restoration and the fullness of joy you created us for. And Lord, you know the physical weakness and limitations I feel, Lord, just... Give me words. Connect the words of my mind. Come, the power of my speech, let them come out. Um, anything I may say that is not pleasing to you or in line with what you have for your people, just let it fall away. Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pick up the story now. First Samuel chapter 7. We'll keep reading in verse 3. Samuel now, the ark is back, 20 years have gone Samuel says to the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. First thing we're going to see, that that we're going to spend the majority of our time on this morning is simply this. The pathway to true renewal always goes through the doorway of genuine repentance. The pathway to true renewal, the pathway to fullness of joy, the pathway to real restoration always goes through the doorway of genuine repentance. And I say genuine because of the very thing Samuel says here in the beginning of verse three. If, Samuel says, you are returning to the Lord with your whole heart, with all your heart, You see, there is a disingenuine type of sorrow that does not lead to a real returning to the Lord with our whole heart. Genuine repentance is more than deep sorrow and a lot of tears. Genuine repentance is more than someone feeling really bad about something and crying a lot about it. Paul will remind the churches in the New Testament that there is a sorrow that does not lead to genuine repentance. There is a sorrow for sin. There is a sorrow for circumstance. There is a sorrow for consequence that does not lead to genuine repentance. Paul calls it a worldly sorrow. But at the same time, he says there is a genuine repentance. There is a sorrow that leads to a genuine repentance that leads the heart to return to the Lord. How do we tell the difference? How can we begin to distinguish between the two? Well, Samuel helps us here even in the Old Testament in Samuel chapter seven. 
Listen to what he says. If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then, here's, here's, the, here's how you can tell the difference. Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Genuine repentance that always leads to a returning of the Lord. Genuine repentance that always opens wide the door to real renewal and the fullness of joy is always a repentance that leads us to put away all of the strange gods that have captivated and ruled our heart. All of the false confidences that our heart has begun to believe in that seemed promising, that seemed compelling, that even seemed productive for life, for peace, and for prosperity. Genuine repentance always leads God's people to putting away those things that create divided loyalties and misplaced confidences in the heart. And make no mistake, it's not an easy process. It was a particularly hard reality for God's people then. You see, the Baal and Ashtaroth were, were the male and female pairing of the Canaanite gods of the harvest and of fertility. And the way that they would be honored, the way that they would be worshipped was through a series of acts and rituals that would satisfy every carnal desire and every carnal lust the human heart could imagine. That's how you worship them. That's how you honored them. So in Japan, as we would go into a shrine and you toss in money and you pull a rope and you ring a bell and you burn incense and you spin a dial and you take a fortune, the way that you would honor the deities of, of Baal and Ashtaroth was a series of just carnal behaviors that would satisfy every misguided lust the human heart could come up with. To put those things away was to deny yourself those things and declare that your heart would be fully satisfied in who God has been and who God continues to be for you. Baal and Ashtoreth said, come to me and gratify yourself. Come to me and experience all that your heart desires of pleasure Maybe I'll be favorable towards you. Returning to the Lord would be satisfying yourself in him. See, disingenuine repentance, worldly sorrow, is a sorrow that might feel contrition and it might feel sorrow and it might feel sadness for the things that dishonor the Lord, but there's always a sorrow that wants to still hold tight to those other things. Worldly sorrow wants both. It wants the promises of God and the promises of Baal. It wants the promises of God and the privilege of Astaroth. Worldly sorrow wants dual citizenship, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of the Lord. But genuine repentance always leads God's people to dealing with the divided loyalties in their heart. If you're really returning to the Lord with your whole heart, Samuel is not going to be duped, but even more than that, Samuel is not going to let God be dishonored by disingenuine repentance. Was there lamenting after God a sorrow that still wanted to cling to the false promises of Baal? Did they want God and did they want their idols? Would they put them away? Friends, before we go too much further in the story, I want you to understand very quickly that genuine repentance today for you and I, even though we may not have little golden statues of Baal in the poles to the Asherahs, the same thing holds true for us when it comes to repentance. Our hearts are just as easily divided by the gods of our own day. Power, prestige, privilege, 
beauty, significance. And even more than thinking about idols, I love the way that the Old Testament and even the New Testament talks about these things that draw our hearts away as suitors for the affection of our heart. That we've been committed covenantally to God and there are these things that come to draw away our satisfaction, to draw away our loyalties that, that cause us in heart to commit adultery on the one who has given himself to us. Our hearts are just as easily divided. We're not that much different. Genuine repentance always leads God's people to putting away those things that divide the loyalties of our heart that create the misplaced and false confidences. Genuine repentance that leads to real renewal, real restoration, real fullness of joy always involves putting those things away and directing our hearts to the Lord. See, if we make it just about putting those things away, then we run the risk of making it about moral reform. We run the risk of of making it about doing all the right things. We've got to be very careful Genuine repentance leads us to putting those things away, but at the same time, directing our hearts to the Lord. Literally, it means making our hearts to stand firm in the Lord. Genuine repentance is a process of whole self, whole heart, whole life reorientation. Forsaking the divided ways of living and enjoying God for who he is and his commands to us for what they are. Genuine repentance always leads us to put those things away. To make our hearts stand firm in who God continues to be for us. And to commit ourselves to serving him only. No dual citizenships. No divided loyalties. No mixed confidences. This is what Samuel said to God's people. If that sorrow is genuine, Put those things away. In verse four, we hear how God's people responded. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. So Samuel looks at him in verse five and he says, gather all of Israel at Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. Here's the thing, genuine repentance that leads to the renewal our heart so desperately longs for and the fullness of joy that we were created for is never just about you. What we're going to see now is Samuel lead all of God's people as a community, as a people in an act of worship and response to who God is and has been and continues to be for them. It's never just about you. So Samuel says, let's get them all together and we're going to express this return and this dependence in worship. And so they gathered, verse six says, at Mitzpah. And they drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. And I'll be honest with you because someone's going to send me an email. There was no precedent to this point for what they're doing here. I mean, there was no precedent for God's people gathering together in worship and pouring out water before the Lord. We don't actually know why they did that and what they were trying to say. But we do know in the coming years, the writer of Lamentations, the prophet in Lamentations will tell God's people in Lamentations chapter two, verse 19, to pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. He may have been drawing upon what God's people were doing here in Mitzpah to make this expression. But they come together and they they have some kind of outward expression of this internal reality of pouring themselves out before the Lord, returning their whole hearts to him. And they fasted on that day. 
Again, just an outward expression of an interdependency. Expressing through their fasting that their highest priority was to the state of their heart, not the immediate need of their body. Just an expression. But then they do something that is absolutely fundamental. They came together and they said together, we have sinned against the Lord. Friends, all the rituals and all the activities of religion are meaningless without the kind of submission that we find in confession. Here, God's people acknowledge and own the offensiveness of all of their conduct. The offensiveness of all the ways that they have treated God's sacrifices with contempt just like their priests had. All the ways that they had dishonored God, had cheated on him by giving their hearts over to the gods of the Philistines. All the ways that they had dishonored him, they owned and they confessed and they poured out before him. This kind of confession is a fundamental and elemental reality of all true, genuine repentance. Put it all together, God's people in their sorrow, lamenting after the Lord, came before the Lord and said, yes, this is what we have done. Yes, this is dishonoring to you. Yes, this is not honoring you for who you are. Yes, my heart has been divided. Yes, my confidence has been mixed. Yes, I've chased after all these things. I pour these things out to you. I own these realities and now I put these things away and I direct my heart again to who you are and who you continue to be for us. This is what God's people were doing. So the first time Samuel shows back up on the scene, he's been gone for a number of years in the story. The first message we have on record in his ministry is a message of repentance. But here's the thing that's not going to be uncommon. You keep reading the story, the same thing's going to be true for John the Baptist, the same thing's going to be true for Jesus. Matthew reminds us when Jesus began his ministry in earnest, he went about preaching repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Own the sin. Own the misguided loyalty. Confess the sin. Put away the false confidences. Direct your heart, fix your heart steadfast on who God continues to be for you. See, here's the thing, friends, all religion, whether it's the religion of the Philistines and the Canaanites, whether it's the religion of the Romans and the Greeks, whether it's the religion of the Shinto in Japan, whether it's the radical individualism here that rules the day in the States, all of religion is about one thing, how to improve yourself. The gospel call to genuine repentance as the doorway to real renewal and real restoration and the fullness of joy, joy is about admitting that you can't do that. It's the utter opposite. It's about confessing your sin and owning the idolatries and the loyalties in your heart and putting them away and casting yourself on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. The pathway to true renewal is the same pathway into the kingdom of God. It's genuine repentance. And the pathway within the kingdom of God is the same as the pathway to the kingdom of God. It's genuine repentance. Martin Luther would shake the entire world when he would write his 95 theses and nail it up on the church door in Wittenberg. And do you know what the first of the 95 theses is? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he wanted the whole life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance. 
The whole life of a follower of Jesus is meant to be one of confessing our divided loyalties, confessing our false confidences, putting them away, directing our hearts again to all that God is for us in his son. God wants us to go there. God wants us to stay there. God wants us to never leave that place because a heart that stays there is a heart that says what matters the most to me is that Jesus is rightly honored in my heart and in my life for who he really is. I see again all the ways that I have betrayed him. He never betrayed me. He died in my place for my sin, but I continue to betray his trust and his love towards me. I want to put that thing away. When Luther says that all of life is meant to be one of repentance, what he's saying is that the pathway into the marriages that God has for us that reflect something of his love towards us and his son, the relationships that he has for us that reflect something of his grace and the way that we love each other as we love, as he, as he has loved us, the way into the culture together as God's people that reflects something of his grace comes through repentance. The marriage that you desperately want, it doesn't come from another book. It doesn't come from another strategy. It comes through repentance. It comes through recognizing all the misplaced confidences and trust that your heart has grabbed onto that have led you to respond to the loved one that you have in your life in a way that's dishonoring to God. The way you get into the relationships, either at work or at school or at home with your kids, with your neighbors, with your friends, that reflect something of God's grace and steadfastness is through repentance. The way into the culture of the gospel in our lives and in the church is through repentance. In fact, we offer a book out there written by a guy named Ray Ortland about the gospel. And if you haven't read it, go get a copy of it, read it. In that book, Ray Ortland says this, the leading edge of redemption in this world is not success, but repentance. Jesus came for defeated people who don't want to fake things anymore. And they're finally open to him. That's his kingdom. And that's the only future for the entire world. William Cooper, a great hymn writer, he, he wrote a song called Oh for a Closer Walk with God. And I don't think in our 11 years we've ever sung it. I don't think, you've ever, you know, I don't, I don't think we've ever sung it. Maybe we will in the coming weeks. The second verse of that song, Cooper says this, where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Where is that soul refreshing view of Jesus and his word? And he leads into verse three, and most people never sing verse three. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol may be, help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Friends, the pathway to genuine renewal, the pathway to lasting restoration, the pathway to fullness of joy, the pathway into the kingdom of God, and the pathway while you're in the kingdom of God always goes through the doorway of genuine repentance. Friends, what divided loyalties, what false confidences is your heart clinging to? What things are holding out promises for peace or prosperity or significance in this world? The pathway to the very joy you were created for, the renewal your heart is desperate for, always goes through the doorway of genuine repentance. I told you we'd spend most of our time there, but there's two more things, right? What was it? It was pathway, Pressure, priority. Okay, pressure. You keep reading the story. We're going to come face to face with a reality that if we're honest, all of us have experienced it one, form, one way or, or another, and that's this. 
Pressure will always come to test the genuineness of our repentance. Pressure will always come to test the genuineness of our repentance. Look what happens in the story in verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now here's the thing, you've got to put it in the context, right? Just over 20 years before they faced the same situation, the Philistines had lined up against them. They were about to go into battle with them. How did they respond? When faced with that pressure of a Philistine attack, they called out for people to go grab the ark. Bring the ark up here. Maybe the ark will save us. They were looking for an it to save them. There was a thing that they could go and get, a thing they could control, a thing that they could manipulate that would save them in the circumstance. What are they going to do now? Look at how different their response is. Faced with the same pressure, here we are on the backside of their crying out to God. Here we are with evidence of a genuineness of repentance happening in their hearts. Here we are now. The tested genuineness of that repentance is going to come to the front. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They didn't say go get that thing. Go get that box. Go get that statue. Go get that pole. Go get that thing. Maybe it will save us. They looked at Samuel and he said, please don't stop crying out to the only one who can save us. Their repentance was directly put under the pressure of testing to expose the genuineness of what was going on in their heart. And here's the thing. The same thing happens for you and I. That circumstance that led to that thing that you found yourself repenting of in your marriage, it's going to show right back up again. It's going to come back with a better pitch, a better promise, a better temptation. It's going to come right back. That thing you found yourself repenting of, casting away from your heart that was underneath the way you treated your coworker, treated your friend, treated your kids, that scenario is coming right back. One more time, you're going to get to stand in that place. And the pressure of that temptation and the pressure of that moment is going to put to test the genuineness of your repentance. How did Israel respond? What would they rely upon this time? This time, as you read the story, you see that the tested genuineness of their faith is exposed. And they pleaded with Samuel, who was standing in the place of their priest, asking him, pleading with him to intercede with God on their behalf. They were trusting the effectual prayers of another to intercede with God on their behalf. And Samuel did. He took a nursing lamb and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. That's a sacrifice of atonement. That's a sacrifice that God had put in place for his people where they would own their sin. They would confess their sin. The whole thing would be burnt up on the altar. No pieces saved for the priest. No pieces set aside for the meal with the family. The whole thing goes up. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. Just as his mom had cried out to the Lord of hosts, the one true God, and he had heard her and answered her, Samuel cries out to the Lord and the Lord hears him and he answers him. 
And it's an amazing picture. The whole problem with the Philistines finally came into view because God's people, and particularly his priests, were showing contempt for God's sacrifices. But here, on the backside of their return to the Lord as an aspect of their genuine repentance, this restoration comes as Samuel offers up a sacrifice. Not showing contempt for what God has promised, but leaning into what God has said. And what happens? Look at verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. Israel wasn't lining up to fight. They were in a worship service. The Philistines got opportunistic. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below as Beth Kaar. I mean, just think about all the ways that God has reversed their story. Just think about all the ways that God has taken what the consequences were for their sin and has flipped the script for them entirely. Last time they fought the Philistines, they were defeated before the Philistines. God defeated them in front of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are defeated before Israel by the hand of the Lord. Last time they fought the Philistines, God acted against them in judgment. This time, God acts for them in deliverance. Previously, when they fought the Philistines, the men of Israel who survived that battle fled to the hill country, every man to his home. Here, they pursue their enemy and put him to the sword. Hannah had promised in her great prayer that God would thunder against those who opposed him. Now, quite literally here in the story, he has. And you've got to enjoy the humor and the irony of the story. God is funny. It's okay to laugh. God is funny in the most holy and the most righteous way. Baal and Ashtoreth were the god of the goddess of the fertility and of the harvest, which means they were supposed to be in control of what? What do you need for a harvest? Rain. So when God decides to bring judgment upon those who are against him, when God thunders down quite literally on those who oppose him, what does he do? He sends a storm. Go ahead, Baal. Counter the storm. Go ahead, Ashra. You're the god of the rain and the goddess of the storm. Do something about it. You've got to enjoy the subtle humor and the subtle irony of God. He brings the storm to destroy those who have put all their confidences in a false deity that's supposed to control it. But don't miss this, the beautiful picture that it was as Samuel was offering the sacrifice that God proved victorious. You keep reading the story and the redemptive chronicles of God's work, it's going to be the same thing when Jesus will offer himself on the cross as the perfect sacrifice of atonement in our place for our sin. It was as the sacrifice is offered that the power of Satan's sin and death would be defeated. But more specifically, the thing that I want you to catch, the thing I just want you to understand is that just as Israel now is relying upon the intercession of another on their behalf when the pressure comes, when the genuineness of their repentance is put to the test, they find themselves now relying upon the intercessory prayer of another on their behalf. I want you to understand that you and I now, when the genuineness of our faith is put to the test, we, we don't have to rely upon our own internal strength to endure. We don't have to rely upon our own ingenuity and strategies to overcome. You and I, by the grace of God, rely on the effectual prayers of another who intercedes with God on our behalf. 
Dale Ralph Davis, the great Old Testament scholar, go by his commentary on 1 Samuel if you haven't already. He said the true secret of our Christian steadfastness is that we rely on the prayers of another whose prayers are always effectual. He said nothing is quite so sweet and quite so moving to the heart of a Christian as knowing that I am the subject of Jesus' constant intercessory prayer. He is the one, as the writer of Hebrews said, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Genuine repentance, friends, is, is the doorway, is the pathway to lasting renewal and restoration, the fullness of joy in God. And when that genuineness of our faith is tested, It's only by the grace of God through the prayers of Christ on our behalf that you and I stand steadfast. But there's a third thing. I'm running out of time. Let's see. What was it? Priority. Priority. I should have written it down. Remembering God's renewing work. Remembering God's restoring work is always meant to be a priority in the lives of God's people. Just watch this in verse 12. Samuel, the backside of God's deliverance. He takes a stone and he sets it up between Mitzpah and Shin. And he called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Now back in chapter four, when they suffered such a big defeat at the hand of the Philistines, do you remember the name of the place where they they lost that battle? The name of the place was Ebenezer. Ebenezer means stone of help. Again, the subtle irony of God the place where he is not going to extend his hand to help them in their time of need as an act of judgment on their sin. Now, on the backside of their restoration, on the backside of their repentance, on the backside of their experiencing the help of God again, Samuel begins to build a memorial to remind God's people for generations that here again we have enjoyed the help of the Lord. And he names it Ebenezer. This memorial was to stand for generations as a reminder of the chain of mercies that God has extended to his people from Abraham to the Exodus to the wilderness, even to the sin that brought that battle to bear, even to the times of their divided hearts and their misguided confidences, even the sin that found them under the oppression of the Israelites, they were to remember because it was in that oppression that they were reminded again of their distinct and deep need for God. They were reminded again of who he is and who he has promised to be. They see again that it was through that oppression that God removed the ungodly leadership that was leading them astray, making straight the path for a shepherd that would be after his own heart. They were to see these memorials and remember till now the Lord has helped us Even in our sin and even in the darkness, he was there. His mercy and his hand was extended towards us. Even till now, looking back on the chain of God's graces and mercies and looking forward to the promise that he will continue to be for them all that he has been for them in the past, Samuel builds a memorial to be an ever-present reminder of of God's mercies a memorial that would serve to sustain their gratitude for God's grace. Friends, as you read the story this week, as you listen to Samuel say, till now the Lord has helped us, have you considered the hand of God helping you in your own life? 
I couldn't help but think, I remember thinking this distinctly on the airplane. I don't know where over the land we actually were, but I was on the plane and I didn't look at the maps. I don't remember where I was, but I remember sitting there and I remember thinking, man, what if we were able to take the story and, and reread it this week and, and consider not till now the Lord has helped us, but what if you were to do the work of, of actually saying till now, how has the Lord helped me? How has he helped me? Have you forgotten where you were when God's grace first rescued you? The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he preached five sermons on this one phrase. Till now, the Lord has helped us. I get like five minutes. So listen to Spurgeon real quick. Spurgeon said, if we will but think, any one of us, what a mass of sin we are. If we will but reflect that we, after all, as one of the church fathers have said, are walking dunghills. We should indeed be surprised that the sun of divine grace should continue so perpetually to shine upon us and that the abundance of heaven's mercy should be revealed in us. Oh Lord, when we recollect what we might have been and what we really have been, we must say, glory be unto the gracious and merciful God who hitherto has helped us. Friends, where are the Ebenezers in your story? Have you taken any time at all to sit down and consider where in your story God has met your infinite need with his gracious supply? Have you sat down to make a list? What a gift it would be to pass on for generations, this list of Ebenezers in the lives of our family and lives of, 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 of our home. Generation after generation, a growing list of all the ways that God has distinctly met our needs with his grace and his mercy and his supply. Would you consider taking time to begin asking him to help you see where the Ebenezers, the stone of remembering, till now he has indeed helped us, what they are in your life. If you do that work, let me ask you to do something else. Start that list with the cross. Put at the top of that list of how God has helped you thus far. Put at the top of the cross. Friends, that is the place where the seriousness of our sin is most fully exposed and the magnitude of God's grace most clearly revealed. It's only when we look to Jesus and see him on the cross that we can say with fullness of heart, till now the Lord has helped us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? If he has so wondrously saved us by his grace, surely he will continue to hold us fast by the same grace. Friends, where are the Ebenezers in your life and in your story? This morning, in just a moment, we are going to respond to God's word as we receive communion together. And I want you to understand that for those of you who come forward to receive communion, who take the bread remembering the body of Jesus broken in your sin, for, for in your place for your sin, you dip it in that cup remembering his blood shed, you are tangibly engaging in this act of remembering. As you again see Jesus there, God is helping us to see ourselves more clearly. The divided loyalties in our hearts more clearly leading us to a place of genuine repentance in heart, returning our hearts to him. As you see him there again, undergoing the ultimate pressure on the genuineness of his love for the Father. 
as you see him there again in the greatest declaration of God's help for sinners, you and I are reminded that as we face the pressure and the testing of our faith, threatened by our circumstances, we know that it's only by his victory and his continual intercession for us that we're able to stand firm. Friends, together, for those who have repented of their sins and believed upon Jesus, we're going to remember quite literally seeing him again there in our place for our sin. And as you do, may you hear the words of the song we've already sang echoing in your head. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here is the stone of help and remembering in my life. Here by thy great help I've come. Friend, let me pray for us and then we'll continue to respond together this morning. Father, we, we thank you that you have provided the path and the means by which our hearts can experience the fullness of joy that you created us for. You have provided the means by which we can experience restoration and renewal. We can be returned to you in right relationship and standing. We can know what it is to be satisfied by who you are for us and have always promised to be for us. And so we ask this morning that you would do by your Holy Spirit that miracle in our hearts that only you can do that you would lead each and every heart here this morning to a place of genuine repentance. You would help us to see, we need your help to see the places where our hearts are divided in confidence, divided in loyalty, looking to something other than you to be satisfied. Help us to see those things that we might put them away and return to you. Direct our affections, our delights and our desires back to who you continue to be for us. We ask this morning that you would do that very thing in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.